Good afternoon. It's Friday the 8th of September 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Colin News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio, Brian Gerrish, and by video link uh, from Damascus, Vanessa Bailey. Um, so let's get straight on with uh, some news. And here we go. Uh, well, it seems that the BBC's disinformation correspondent lied on her CV, according to the New European. Now, the New European website uh, was set up uh, to counter uh, what they describe as uh, right-wing media uh, following Brexit. Uh, so with that context, this is what they had to say. Mariana Spring admitted she made an awful mis misjudgment when playing up her role in coverage of the Russia World Cup for the BBC. Uh, so here's what they say. Five years ago in 2018, Spring was looking for work as a Moscow stringer for US-based site Coda Story. In her application to Editor-in-Chief Natalia uh, Antaleva, uh, she included a CV which claimed to have worked alongside BBC correspondent Sarah Rainsford on the corporation's coverage of the Football World Cup held in Russia. Uh, the entry in her CV read, June 2018 reported on international news during the World Cup, specifically the perception of Russia with BBC correspondent Sarah Rainsford. This claim was, unfortunately, says the new European, pure disinformation. Uh, in reality, she had uh, merely met Rainsford in a couple of social situations. The claim was a lie. Uh, so the new European goes on to say, or quote, uh, what her response, I only bumped into Sarah while she worked and chatted uh, to her various points, but nothing more. Everything else on my CV is entirely true. She emailed during uh, assuring the uh, 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 Antaleva that uh, she was uh, a brilliant reporter. Uh, there's absolutely no excuse at all. And I'm really sorry again, Spring told Antaleva uh, in emails seen by Mandrake, uh, that's the reporter in this case, the only explanation at all is my desperation to report out in Moscow and thinking it wouldn't be a big deal, which is totally naive and stupid of me. I feel really sorry again for this awful misjudgment on my part. What do you think? Well, she's, she clearly was the best person the BBC could have as a disinformation specialist, and her CV has worked because the BBC's taken her on. Yes. Vanessa, have you got any thoughts? No, there's a brilliant comment from Antaleva saying, I think, well, I don't think you could be called a brilliant journalist after what you've just done. Because it's, I mean, that's the incredible thing that Spring has the chutzpah to kind of basically say, yeah, but even because I lie on my CV, I'm still a brilliant journalist. Yeah, because that's, that's what, what, that's, that's what you have to do yeah. to be a journalist for the BBC. She's <laughs> yeah. told the exactly. truth. Uh, well, I just wanted to pick up here with the... Uh, uh, the Daily Mail's report, because of course the Daily Mail uh, picked up on what the European, uh, the New European, had actually said, and so we're just going to have a dig at the Daily Mail here because they lift the New European story, but they don't do any proper research or criticism of Mariana Spring themselves. So this is the Daily Mail just, uh, you know, showing that it's there for the ride, but it's not really interested in what. Uh, the significance of this story and what it represents for the BBC and accurate reporting. Um, I just mentioned that at the end of the Daily Mail article, they uh, say that they asked the BBC for comment, but the BBC refused yeah. to comment on this. But anyway, of course, this comes only a couple of days after The Guardian published this article, the BBC's Mariana Spring, and quoting Mariana Spring is saying, uh, the more violent the rhetoric, the more important it is to expose it. And of course, uh, this type of puff piece uh, has been appearing more and more in the mainstream press over the last few months. And the question is why? Well, of course, it's because the online safety bill is finally making progress through uh, the uh, through Parliament. So it has passed through the House of Lords, if we just bring on its current state. It's passed through the House of Lords. It's now gone back to the House of Commons for consideration of amendments. Uh, and this is the final stage before it becomes law. Now, the question is, how did it get through the House of Lords? Well, because there was an apparent backtrack by the government on the issue of end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, so Lord Parkinson got up in Parliament uh, a day or two ago and said this, if the appropriate technology does not exist that meets these requirements, that's the requirement that the bill uh, imposes on technology companies to allow government access to certain end-to-end -end encrypted uh, uh, communications, then Ofcom will not be able to use Clause 122 to require its use. Uh, I notice can be issued only when they're, where technically feasible 
and where technology has been accredited as meeting minimum standards of accuracy. So this implied uh, that the government had moved back on its position uh, of requiring uh, backdoor access to end, end encryption. Um, people didn't necessarily believe that. So this is Will Cathcart, who's uh, the head of uh, uh, um, one of the big... Uh, check. No, 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 no. It's one of the big... Uh, communications platforms, it's WhatsApp, it's come to me. So it's WhatsApp, yeah. it's even on screen, for goodness sake. Uh, the fact yeah. remains that scanning everyone's messages would destroy privacy as, he know it, as, as we know it, he said, talking about the Financial Times coverage of this situation. Uh, Tom Tugendhat, though, went riding to the rescue because any suggestion that the, the government was backtracking was absolutely wrong, according to him. Uh, he said the measures on the, in the online safety bill will help protect countless children from predators online because this is the cover story that they're using for this absolutely egregious uh, breach of freedom of speech. Uh, the government's position has not changed, he said, and that was followed up with a specific uh, uh, statement from the government saying, as has always been the case as a last resort on a case-by-case -case basis, and only when stringent privacy safeguards have been met, the bill will enable Ofcom to direct companies to either use or make best efforts to develop or source technology to identify and remove illegal child sexual abuse content. And of course, again, they're hiding under this guise of child sexual abuse in order to justify this. Now, uh, if the technology doesn't exist, then is there any pressure coming on the tech companies to Im implement some form of technology to allow backdoor access to end, -end, -to -end encryption? Well, there is, and it's actually not just from the UK, it's also from the EU. So let's just remind ourselves that the EU Digital Markets Act is now fully operational. And they are requiring, or it is requiring, uh, the tech companies uh, allow interoperability between various end-to-end -end encrypted uh, messaging apps. So, of course, if there has to be transfer of data between various messaging apps, then the encryption that each company has uh, employed is going to have to be watered down in some way. Well, we'll see how that particular uh, course of action transpires, how that puts pressure on the tech companies. But in the meantime, I just want to finally remind everybody that it's not just the online safety bill, which is putting pressure on end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, it's also the, uh, uh, REPA, the REPA, the Revised Investigatory Powers Act. Uh, and if you remember, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, the, this idea of notices and the new regime. It, this goes hand in hand with online safety bill. And there was a consultation which closed on the 31st of July. We're still waiting for the government's response to that consultation. But just to remind you that uh, this upgrade to the investigatory powers was creating several new types of notice. One is a data retention notice. Uh, one is a technical capability notice. Uh, and another one is a national security notice. Uh, but the key thing here was, and the really dangerous thing, here was that the Investigatory Powers Act uh, would uh, require companies in receipt of these notices. So if the government is saying, well, Mike Robinson needs to be snooped upon and applies a notice to uh, WhatsApp or whoever it is uh, requiring them to snoop on me, uh, that I cannot be told. Sorry, I've just put that back on screen for a second, Stephanie, thanks. Uh, I cannot be told uh, that that notice has been given to WhatsApp or to any other platform. So Platforms must not disclose the existence or contents of, an, of the notice with any other person without the permission of the Secretary of State. And for this reason, it is Home Office policy to neither confirm nor deny the existence of any such notices. This is hugely dangerous. Well, it's, it's absolute Stasi state, and they're not even trying to hide the, the idea that this is where they, you know, what they're doing and the cynicism that they use the protection of children as the excuse to bring this stuff in is simply despicable because everything else we see happening in UK in 2023 is, is to do with the abuse of children by the state, as we'll see as we, we uh, get further into the news today. Yes. Okay. So, Vanessa, let's look at uh, some of the pretty egregious content on uh, mainstream media at the moment. And my question is, is my pet killing the planet? Yeah, I mean, this was an article that I actually kind of just stumbled on yesterday and read with horror. Um, this is by Sean Thomas at The Spectator magazine. So if we, he's a travel writer, so let's have a look at what he's saying. Um, so basically what he's saying is um, that he feels sad and guilty about the way we humans treat our planet. Uh, travel writers very much included because he apparently always comes under fire for, for um, 
his carbon footprint when he travels around the world. Uh, but now he's saying that someone has come to his rescue and made him feel a lot better, at least relatively. His name is Patrick Hansen, and he's the boss of private jet firm Lux, Lux Aviation. Uh, at a media event recently, Hansen claimed that the average private jet customer is responsible for about the same emissions of carbon dioxide as someone who owns three medium-sized dogs or just one big dog. So clearly this, this had me hooked at this point because I, I couldn't actually believe what I was reading. So he continues. So he goes over some numbers for a troubled conscience to chew over. In the US, meat consumption by pets generates 64 million tons of CO2 annually. That's the equivalent of driving 13.6 million cars. And if all the dogs and cats in America were a nation, it would be the world's fifth largest in terms of meat consumption. That's meat which could go to hungry humans. What he, of course, forgets to mention is that cats and dogs are naturally carnivores. Humans can eat an awful lot of other stuff. Um, meanwhile, simply owning a big dog generates 2.5 tons of CO2 a year. He gives absolutely no evidence to the claims that he's making, by the way, but he continues. The list of pet negatives goes on. Think of all the land set aside to grow the food that feeds the pets, millions of acres. Think of all the waste and CO2 created to make a billion pet toys. Think of the methane pets emit when they aren't pooping the environment into oblivion. One British study estimated that the flatulent dogs of Sheffield alone produced 1,500 tons of methane a year. Um, he continues, the case is surely made. Pets are a tremendous drag on the planet, and it's not like we even need them. Aside from a few exceptional cases, so he does mention working rural animals, companions for people with severe loneliness, which is the majority of us after the COVID project, guide dogs for the blind. There is no logical justification for having a pet beyond sentimental reasons. Therefore, if you own a cat or a dog while still whining, about the environment, you are that unpleasant thing, a hypocrite. It, I, I just, I mean, I would be interested to get um, Brian's comments particularly, but to me, this is part of this. This isn't the first time that I've seen attacks on animals. Back in 2021, there were claims, of course, um, that COVID could be transmitted through uh, domestic animals and zoo animals. Uh, so there was the pet vaccine rollout, which I claimed is psychological warfare against humanity. And I still claim that, that this warfare against domestic animals in particular, but against also uh, wildfowl, against chickens, against uh, livestock generally, is an attack on humanity itself. So who are producing the vaccines for animals that, by the way, were given out to um pretty rare creatures in zoos in the US and I think in various other countries in the world. Zoetis are world leaders in the animal vaccine industry. The global animal vaccine market generated 9.9 .9 billion in 2020 and is estimated to achieve 13.78 billion by 2028. This growth is on track despite the negative impact of the COVID-19 restrictions and lockdown. The company has existed for more than 65 years and until 2013, oddly enough, was Pfizer's animal health unit. Pfizer has itself, of course, been fined almost $5 billion in the last 20 years for making false claims about their products. Zoetis, by the way, have an annual um, income of 11 billion with, I think, around 11,000 employees. So that gives you an indication of, of what a lucrative market this is for them. So um, in 2018, and this trial has only just uh, been finalized, Zoetis were, um, were accused of a prior breach of vaccine licensing without sufficient clinical trials. Um, horse owners brought a 53 million class action lawsuit against Zoetis for failing to warn of side effects of a Hendra virus vaccine. 1,500 horses out of 500,000 vaccinated had suffered adverse reactions and had been unable to return to work. The Hendra virus is transmitted by flying foxes or bats, similar to claims made about the origins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. 
LHD lawyers argued that Zoetis had aggressively marketed the Hendra vaccine for all horses in Australia in breach of the licensing and without proper clinical trials to identify side effects. That also goes, by the way, for the COVID vaccine that was given um, particularly to zoo animals and to domestic animals. Um, <clears throat> perhaps most importantly, the lawsuit alleged that Zoetis overstated the risks of the Hendra virus to the horse community. In 2022, um, Zoetis succeeded in defending its 53 million class action uh, and the legal company defending it um, managed to, to basically absolve them of all of the accusations. Not surprising. But this appears to be an attack on our humanity, on our connection to nature, just are, just are of course, the recent wildfires and floods that we're seeing that is devastating uh, nature generally, um, while of course claiming that we are the ones that are guilty of destroying the planet through owning pets. Quite incredible. Yes, and I just want to end this segment by reminding everybody that mm. of course uh, there was this campaign in the media in uh, 2021 over cats. Uh, owners warned against cuddling their cats after kitten dies from COVID, said The Telegraph. And of course, my mm. response when we reported this at the time was, uh, because the streets are littered with the bodies of dead cats. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was the whole thing was ridiculous. And then, of course, uh, in March this year, uh, James Bethel, uh, former health minister, uh, and he admitted the fact that the government was actually seriously considering a cull of all cats in the in the UK um, at the time. So, you know, this this is quite incredible. But the thing that really struck me about uh, your report, Vanessa, was the parallels between the horse vaccine and what happened in humans. Uh, with the COVID vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just add very quickly, of course, Vanessa's right. Where was the evidence for claims made in that article and say that meat from animals or the, or the meat that animals would eat could go to humans is uh, is nonsense because, of course, the majority of that is condemned meat unfit for human consumption. So the animal's doing us perhaps a favour in that way. But yes, the whole article, utterly vicious, but no comment made on that. Well, let's move on uh, to the subject of the Fixated Threat Assessment Centre. And this is an organisation that UK Column was talking about well over 10 years ago because we regarded it as so dangerous. Why am I talking about it today? Because I've been stunned to find out that this unit, which says it uh, protects uh, people with high profile in the public domain, has been getting involved with uh, child cases. But let's uh, just have a look at the basics. This is... Uh, part of the website, the Fixated Threat Assessment Centre diverts into treatment mentally ill people who stalk, harass or threaten public figures. By doing so, it provides them with the care they need and prevents harm to those around them. When this unit was set up, it was for the royal family and people with a high public profile, but the royal family seems to have disappeared off this. But it gives more. It says it's the first joint NHS police unit in the UK. Its purpose is to assess and manage the risk from lone individuals who harass, stalk or threaten public figures. FTAC helps such people get the care they need and de decreases any risk they might pose. It's a unit within the Met Police, its national remit. And then if we just have a look at this little note down the bottom, the site's operated by what it says is the Fixated Research Group uh, and is independent from the Metropolitan Police Service and NHS provider organisations. So one has to ask how this thing works. But um, let's just look at the darkness of the website. Now, this is psychiatrists getting involved, supposedly, in helping people. But the whole website is unbelievably dark. So here's the fixated research group. Uh, this is about what they say about themselves. Main risk to elected politicians. So if you think you're going to get too too close and challenge a politician too regularly, you need to be careful because this unit is going to be on you. It's working in Western countries. Uh, the majority of fixated loners are mentally ill. Well, that's interesting who says that. Different sorts of risks are associated. And then it says other than violence, which is rare, risks which need to be assessed comprise persistence, escalation and disruption. 
and attention to inappropriate communication and approaches to public figures. So this is getting very close to anybody who dare stands up to their MP. But if we have a look at some of the people involved, it gets more fascinating because we're into Australians. So we've got a Paul E. Mullin, professor of Monash University, Melbourne, and visiting professor of the Institute of Psychiatry, London. Uh, we've got a Michelle Path, um, consultant forensic psychiatrist and community forensic mental health service in Brisbane, Australia. So how do they fit into the legal system or a system of accountability in UK? Well, it's very difficult to tell. Uh, we've got more. This, this one is David James. So he's a senior lecturer in forensic psychiatry, University College London. Uh, we've got uh, Reed Melloy here from San Diego School of Medicine. So we've got another American. Uh, we've got Frank Farnham. Um, he's uh, from the uh, North London Forensic Service. And if we just do the last one, the associates, uh, we've got an American here from the University of Nebraska, Lincoln. So all these people monitoring the UK public to see what's uh, what they're doing and if they're a threat. Now, if we go back to about 2009, Grant Shapps did ask some questions in Parliament. Uh, he asked about the floor area of office space. Um, he asked here about um, how many individuals detained by the Fixated Threat Assessment Centre had subsequently been given custodial sentences. Uh, you can freeze the screen to see the answers to this, but there's quite a lot of questions. Um, he's talking about the average length of time that an individual was examined by a registered med medical practitioner. And uh, he goes on to ask the Secretary of State for the Home Department on how many occasions fixated threat assessment centres made use of police powers. And over here, he's talking about how many police officers, psychiatric nurses, psychiatrists and psychologists are employed. Uh, Ten police officers, three forensic community mental health nurses, um, point 0.8 of a whole-time equivalent consultant psychiatrist and point 0.5 of a whole-time equivalent uh, uh, psychologist. And uh, if we just move the arrow, if it will go down here. And what are the running costs? Well, it's a cool uh, £507 million. To, uh, to, no, that's uh, I beg your pardon, uh, £1,000. So half a million pounds, get it right, uh, in order to run this unit. But nobody's too sure about what it does. This is an actual email that somebody received from their GP, uh, the GP having been triggered by uh, an email from FTAC saying they were worried about the particular person. This is really quite scary because this arrived out of the blue for the individual concerned. Now, back in 20. Uh, 13, uh, we were warning that the network um, that Theresa May had set up, and in this network, the Fixated Threat Assessment Centre was one of the big ones we picked up. We warned what was coming. We asked if she, if she was the most dangerous woman in politics. And um, she was Home Secretary at that time. Correct. And we described this as a British gulag. So we've started off the news and we're talking about an East German Stasi system, UK column warning back in 2013 what was going on here. And if we put some of the pieces, if we can get this to move on, in, uh, if we put some of this in a network, which we did at the time, we were watching what was happening to free speech. The banks had uh, funded Common Purpose. Common Purpose kick-started the Media Standards Trust. Um, this produced hacked off and full fact, which of course are now censoring uh, media. Uh, a lot of this was coming in with EU controls, uh, but we also had the Leveson inquiry, which was clearly about control of the media. At the same time, um, Ken Clark was uh, talking about more secrecy in the courts. We had the Association of Chief Police Officers saying that people arrested by the police would not be named. And then we had that leading into the fixated threat assessment. And we also had another secretive organisation called MAPA, which was tracking down people in custody and was also working to have mothers sectioned or to assist in children being stolen by the state. So we warned in 2013 that uh, the state was controlling press. And part of our comments at that time 
was on Mr. Pickles. And he had this to say, which I think is very significant. We are going to shake up the balance of power in this country. We're going to change the nature of the Constitution, being no doubt about our commitment to localism. I know I look like an unlikely revolutionary, but the revolution starts here. And the first question I'm going to ask is the localism, is that now 15-minute cities, do you think? Indeed. It could be. Uh, But essentially, FTAC is a very dark unit. We really don't understand how it works. How is it accountable to the public? But this unit can effectively have any member of the public sectioned or at least examined by a psychiatrist or psychologist simply because they have dared to challenge an MP or to speak out about somebody with a high public profile. It's incredibly sinister. Okay, uh, let's uh, move on, uh, Vanessa, to child trafficking. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote that uh, this article this week. It's up at my Substack. Western rampant hypocrisy as they condemn children in northeast Syria to a life of abuse. And below that, there's um, a screenshot from a Save the Children report. There are multiple human rights organizations reports on the effect of abuse and torture that these children are living under, and many of them are British nationals. I would say way more than 60, but also EU nationals, US nationals. Um, And just to give you an idea of where these camps generally are in that northeastern area, which is under the occupation of the United States, which is also, of course, stealing oil and resources, and uh, the Kurdish separatists. So those ISIS camps, which, by the way, are currently being expanded through funding from the UK and the US. So the UK is actively involved not only in not repatriating these children, but in expanding basically the torture centers that they're being forced to live in. So let's have a quick look. So Neil Holland uh, was appointed head of the United Kingdom's delegation to the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE, in May of this year. In June, Holland made a statement um, to the OCSE that Russia's brutality towards Ukraine's children, uh, in which he said, Mr. Chair, we also continue to receive disturbing reports of the forced deportation of Ukrainian children by the Russian authorities. As the most recent Moscow Mechanism report makes clear, these children are exposed to the deep trauma of being separated from their parents. They suffer violations and abuses of their rights, including being forced to relinquish their Ukrainian identity and participate in Russia-centric education. Russia's forced deportation and attempted indoctrination of Ukrainian children is a despicable and systematic attempt to erase Ukraine's future. Now let's have a quick look at some of the refugee centers and areas that I visited back in November 2022 when the referendum was ongoing for those so-called Ukrainian territories to be reunified with Russia. Um, Many of these families were from Mariupol. They are basically being taken care of in eastern Russia until Russia has rebuilt the areas of Mariupol that they fled from that were flattened by um, the Kiev regime forces. So you can see here the building itself is beautiful. The surroundings are beautiful. The kids are well taken care of. They received trauma counseling. They have three meals a day. Um, yes, they are um, basically absorbed into the Russian education system, but um, with the vision of allowing them to go back to um, the Donbass uh, when the war is ended. So totally very, very different picture to what is being presented by Holland. And then let's have a look at what's happening in the Northeast. So the majority of the children that are being um, held in these camps are foreign nationals. Um, As it says, as of January the 23rd, 2023, nearly 42,000 foreigners remain held in the region, along with more than 23,000 Syrians. 37,000 foreign nationals are detained in Al-Hol and Roj, two locked sprawling camps primarily holding the wives. Other adult female relatives and children of male ISIS suspects, 27,000 foreigners in the camps are from neighboring Iraq, while nearly 10,000 others are from about 60 other countries, including, of course, the UK. More than 60% of the camp detainees are children. Nearly 80% of the children are under the age of 12, 
and 30% are age five or younger. Approximately 5,000 other foreigners are held in prisons and so-called rehabilitation centers, including up to several, several hundred children. Now, the conditions that these children are being held in, they are prey to child trafficking, to child rape, to uh, general exploitation and abuse by the terrorists that they share the camps with. Children are regularly taken from their parents and the parents are not informed as to which camp they are being held in and many of them simply disappear. Remember, many of these are British nationals. So this is what the British government uh, thinks of its own nationals being held in, in northeast Syria. This is one of the human rights group's uh, conclusions in their report. The unlawful detention in northeast Syria of 23,000 foreign children from dozens of countries has deprived them of their basic rights as children, including the rights to a nationality, health, education, family unity, and freedom from mistreatment and arbitrary detention. Those who have died because of the conditions or circumstances of their detention have been denied the right to life itself. And let's have a look at um, what uh, former ambassador Peter Ford said to me about this situation in relation to the accusations uh, that the UK and other NATO member states are uh, levying at Russia and via the ICC, of course. The UK, so apparently solicitous regarding the children of Ukraine, appears less concerned about some of its own. To the extent, in fact, of denying them not just a right of abode in the UK, but even a right to UK nationality. The most well-known case is that of Shamima Begum. Remember that she was trafficked, aged 15, by Canadian intelligence with the full knowledge of MI6 and intelligence agencies in the UK. She was an East London teenager encouraged by British government propaganda demonizing Assad to join ISIS and subsequently stripped of her nationality and forced to fester for years in the extremism incubators, which are the ISIS prisoner camps in the US-UK controlled northern Syria. The sins of mothers being visited on the children. Begum's children are consequently also denied their birthright and a chance to live in Britain. For a government which behaves this despicably towards children of its own nation, to posture as a children's champion is a sickening hypocrisy, and I can't agree more. In the article, there is a lot more detail about the awful, squalid uh, conditions that these children are living in and are being denied um, repatriation, bearing in mind that Sajid Javed in 2019 offered amnesty to British al-Qaeda fighters in northwest Syria. He gave them 28 days to return to Syria. Complete hypocrisy. Uh, and then, yeah, did you want to comment I, I was on that? just going to say, the moment we talk about this subject, I, re I remember, I think it was the 400 uh, unaccompanied Syrian children that came to the UK, and the government calmly said, "Well, they've disappeared." Well, we're just going to come on to that. We're going to come on to so, that. So let's just, let's just do that. So yeah. uh, the saga does continue because, of course, it's also children being trafficked into the UK, not British children into the UK, of course, uh, but unaccompanied children. Uh, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because uh, in 2022, the Independent Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration released this report, uh, an inspection of the use of hotels for housing unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. Um, and the government has now uh, decided, or they, uh, the independent chief inspector has now decided to reappraise these hotels. And this is why. So they've just uh, announced that they're going to do that. So this is why, because this was the conclusions in this report. They said that with immediate effect, the hotels had to prevent individuals without a clear enhanced disclosure and barring service check from residing and working within the hotels currently being used to house young people and for any ho hotels used by the Home Office in the future. So no DBS check for people that were working in the hotels with these children. It could have been anybody. Uh, within one month, he said, uh, using external expertise if required, undertake a robust assessment of the collective needs of the young people housed in hotels with due regard to Section 55 of the Border Citizenship and Immigration Act 2009 uh, to inform the development of standards, uh, uh, feedback and data from children and young people, housing hotels, contractors, management information collected by the operation and so on, and also the activities of external agencies, including NGOs, uh, that within three months they had to develop a challenge and scrut scrutiny mechanism drawing on internal and external expertise and the resources to monitor delivery of the operation with 
a specific focus on safeguarding children's welfare. So he obviously had concerns about children safeguarding in these establishments. And as I say, they've now decided that they are going to reevaluate the hotels. Um, but to come to, to the point that Brian was bringing up there, I just remind everybody again of this report uh, that we've mentioned many times before from the uh, NGO Missing People called Heading Back to Harm, in which they said the trafficked, unaccompanied, asylum-seeking children are going missing from UK care at an alarmingly high rate. Um, and the point is, if I remember rightly, this report came out in 2016, 2017, but this actually was understood by the UK government uh, through the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Runaway and Missing Children and Adults and the uh, uh, All-Party Parliamentary Group for Looked After Children and Care Leavers. This was a report from 2012. So the trafficking of children, as I described it, for fun and profit, was understood uh, in 2012 via this report. This was called the Report from the Joint Inquiry into Children Who Go Missing from Care. It, it has been uh, an issue which has been ongoing for quite a long time in this country. So we are trafficking children uh, in other countries, but we're also trafficking children into this country where they're disappearing from the care system into goodness, goodness knows what, uh, various sexual slavery or other kinds of modern, so-called modern slavery. And, and uh, the system works so effectively because the, the moment the children come into the so-called protection system, uh, they can simply move on and parents or guardians have no right to know what has happened with the children. So as a, uh, I'm not using this in a disparaging way, but as a sweetie shop, the system is here. And uh, it is despicable to see this and to discover that FTAC is now working uh, against parents keeping their children is, is to me just beyond belief. Yes. Uh, Vanessa, you got a brief comment to end? No, I mean, you know, I, do, I just find that w when the West and Ukraine, of course, are basically the hubs of child trafficking, um, organ trafficking, child abduction, then to be levying the accusations they are against Russia with very little sub substantiation. It's pure projection. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. You can join us as a member and your membership very much needed and appreciated. Uh, or you could pick something up at the UK Column shop. That's at shop.ukcolumn.org. Uh, but in any case, please do share anything that you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Um, so uh, I just want to mention uh, an a discussion that uh, you and I had, Vanessa, with a couple of special ladies, uh, aside from yourself, of course. Uh, just give <laughs> us give us your thoughts on this interview, Media on Trial. Well, I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed having the conversation, so thank you very much for organizing it. I mean, yes, they are two of my best friends and longest-term colleagues, really, in the work that I do. Um, and it was, I think, a very open, um, kind of far-ranging discussion. I hope everyone enjoys it. Yes, thank you. And uh, Brian, that brings us on to the Leon Cryer, third Leon Cryer interview that went out yesterday. Yes, we've had a really good response uh, to this gentleman and his uh, knowledge about urban planning and architecture, really uh, tremendous. But in this uh, third interview, we're looking at the super city in Saudi, Neon. And if uh, if people haven't got an idea of what's being planned for us, uh, listening to or watch this interview and see what's coming in the mind of some of the urban planners. Okay, and uh, we just bring this one in. We've got uh, a free event in Surrey, Sunday the 10th of September, Priory Park, Rygate. Uh, Richard Vobes is going to be there, Robin Tilbrook, um, Nigel Jacqueline from the Democrat Network, uh, Debbie Hicks, uh, Kate Winters from the People's Health Alliance uh, and Piers Corbyn. Uh, so they're going to be doing a stand in the park with obviously some really good speakers. So if you can get there and support that, that will be good. I'll just bring up this email that came in from a lady called Priscilla who said, it is a shame that you're promoting stand in the parks, but many of them happen at the same time as the time for a Sunday church service. And this causes a problem. I'm going to say, I think this is one of the things where 
the local groups and the people have got to sort this sort of thing out themselves. So we're going to say you can all manage to work together. You just need to speak to each other and see what you can do. Um, this one here, uh, this is uh, also about Stand in the Park, uh, but some people have got some concerns about an organisation called Community Solidarity excuse me, Community Solidarity Stroud District. Uh, these people, it's alleged, have been quite disruptive at meetings and they've made apparently claims against the light newspaper, including that it's anti-Semitic, far-right, homophobic and climate denying. Um, so if you find this organisation, treat it with care and maybe you'd like to report back to the UK column. Uh, also pop this one up because we're getting some very interesting information from people about immigration and what's happening with people coming into the country. I just wanted to pop this one up on screen to say I am paying attention to what you're sending and we will follow up with the contacts that you're getting. Uh, so this one was giving us information in bullet points about uh, what was happening. Um, and uh, as I say, we, it, this is in relation to Wigan, but we will follow up on it. Uh, we've got another one here. It says, thank you for the good works. But it's talking about children coming home from school with a letter which says they can no longer use the word no. They must now say yes at all times, <laughs> except the letter says that no, they mustn't use the word no. Right. But, that's, uh, that's a problem, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Madness in the schools. But of course, it's not to be laughed at because this is reframing the children. So thank you for sending that in. Um, OK, let's move on to Russia then. And uh, well, the first news is that the British government has decided that the Wagner Group needs to be made a terrorist organisation. It's got to be prescribed. So let's look at what the uh, Home Office said. Uh, that Home Secretary Swella Braverman has today, that was on Wednesday, laid before Parliament a draft order uh, to prescribe Wagner Group under the Terrorism Act 2000. Wagner Group is a proxy military force of Vladimir Putin's Russia, which operates across the globe. Uh, okay, what about all the proxy forces that the UK uses across the globe? Do they get also prescribed? No, 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 of course not. Right. No, different rules apply to that. Different rules, okay, okay, okay. So let's look on what they said. Once agreed, the order will come into force on the 13th of September, making it a criminal offence to belong to, encourage support for, assist or use the logo of that group. Now you can see that I've used the logo of that group in this graphic, so perhaps following the 13th of September, I'm not allowed to do that anymore. Uh, certain prescri prescription offences can be punishable by up to 14 years in prison, which can be handed down alongside or in place of a fine. Um, so there you go. That's what they're doing. Uh, so this is the rules-based international order who make up a rule that's then enforced, <laughs> and that's how democracy on a global scale works. Uh, absolutely. Uh, in the meantime, uh, this is Sergei uh, Nar Narishkin, who is, well, effectively, I suppose we could say he's C in Russia because he's the head of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Services. Uh, and he was speaking to TASS a couple of days ago, and he had this to say. Uh, he said, Great Britain has for many centuries been and still remains a dangerous geopolitical adversary of our country, that being Russia, of course. Uh, the many wars and conflicts that were triggered in Europe involving Russia uh, against its interests can often be traced back to London. Uh, examples of behind-the-scenes intrigues and provocations by uh, the British against our country not uh, number not just in the dozens, but in the hundreds. Uh, but then he went on to say uh, that the UK has long played a subsidiary and not a leading role in the US-British tandem. Uh, and Vanessa, I would just say that I disagree with that statement in the sense that, okay, the UK hasn't had for a very long time uh, the sort of uh, kinetic strength of military force that the United States has. Uh, but Britain has always played this sort of manipulation role in encouraging other people to act as its proxy. Uh, and uh, I would then ask, in fact, do we make, do we prescribe the entire United States military? Because it has been acting, in my view, as a British proxy in many ways for quite a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And meanwhile, the BBC is quite happy to chummy up with prescribed terrorists in Idlib and absolute. So are they going to get 14 years in prison? Or supporting and endorsing a terrorist organization. Uh, that sounds like a campaign somebody needs to run. Uh, but let's uh, move on then, Vanessa, to uh, Armenia. Mm. Well, I mean, I first of all immediately have to say I'm not an expert in Armenia, but there is a large Armenian community uh, inside Syria itself. And I rely very much on a dear friend and colleague, Kivok Almasyan, whose uh, report I've included in mine. Um, and 
you know, people should follow him. He has a very clear indication that there is about to be an escalation in the conflict uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, of course, with the hands of Israel and Turkey uh, in Azerbaijan. Particularly, Israel is supplying uh, the majority of the weapons for, to Azerbaijan. But also internally, uh, Pashinyan, the prime minister, Nikol Pashinyan uh, of Armenia and Yerevan, has for a long time actually been working on behalf of NATO, trying to uh, frustrate the Russians to the extent where they abandon uh, the region. Uh, and that includes, of course, giving up uh, their military base on the border with uh, Turkey. So here, this was a fairly, uh, this was back in May uh, 2023. Uh, Nikol Pashinyan was quoted on Monday indicating sweeping changes in his country's policy vis-a-vis -vis its arch foe Azerbaijan and its ally Russia. Armenia is ready to recognize the Nagorno-Karabakh enclave as part of Azerbaijan. So basically Pashinyan, who has already ceded strategic territory, particularly in, in the heights of Armenia, which gives Azerbaijan a military advantage from which they have already been shelling uh, and firing on uh, Armenia for some time now. Um, if Baku uh, in Azerbaijan guarantees the security of its ethnic Armenian population, the Russian state news agency TASS and the Russian news outlet uh, Ostorozo and Novosti quoted Pashinyan as saying on Monday, so basically, if we have a look at the uh, map, that shows very clearly this territory, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, in the circle, or um, Artsakh, as Armenians know it as. It's basically now a, a buffer zone with Russian peacekeeping troops inside. It's been under blockade by Azerbaijan uh, for some years now. And so basically, effectively, it's rather like Gaza. It is uh, pretty much under blockade. It's constantly being fired on. Farmers currently are being fired on while they're trying to harvest their crops. Uh, and as I said, Pashinyan is, is believed to be working on behalf of NATO. So if he basically hands over this territory, that will mean that the Russian peacekeeping troops will, will leave uh, that territory. This is a quick video that I've, I've sort of edited slightly by Kivok, which will give you a little bit more background. So the rule number one should be when you want to give concessions or strike a, a peace deal with your enemy is that your enemy is willing to adhere to the principles of a peace agreement. And this doesn't exist in uh, Baku and in Ankara. This is number one. Number two, even if we put aside all this. Geographically speaking, the region of Artsakh represented a buffer zone between Armenia proper and Azerbaijan. And it, it, from the military point of view, it's very important for Armenia to hold this territory in order to keep the danger away from Armenia proper. This is very simple geomilitary aspect. And this was the case, for example, after the Lebanese civil war, when the Syrian side intervened militarily in Lebanon because Israeli side also intervened. So the rule of engagement was we fight each other under the Lebanese territories. Syria wants to fight Israel under Lebanese territories so that the infighting and the fighting do not split into the Syrian territories. And once Syria withdrew in a humiliating way from Lebanon in 2005, the, the fighting has moved to Syria in 2011. This was very clear that it's going to happen also in Armenia. And I am saying this with a heavy heart. I do believe that there is going to be battles inside the Armenian territories when and or if the Armenians lose Artsakh completely. And in my opinion, if Pashinyan stays in power longer in the next, let's say, a year or two, we're we're gonna face one of these two scenarios. One, it's either Armenia's going to lose Artsakh completely by military means from the Azerbaijani side, which means complete ethnic cleansing, which means the Armenians will have to will be forced to move to Armenia proper. Or second, they will be absorbed in the Azerbaijani uh, society, which has millions of Azeri people, which also practically means that they will be assimilated in the Azeri society on the, uh, on the short and the medium run. 
and they will be also lose they will also lose their identity they will they will lose their culture and accordingly it will also be a sort of an ethnic cleansing so in my opinion if Pashinyan stays in power Armenians are going to lose Artsakh whether through diplomatic means or through a military means and in both cases they So um, basically what Kudvork is saying is that there is an impending full-scale attack by Azerbaijan against Armenia. Uh, and I recommend that everybody watches this fascinating interview with Armenian Alison Parmesian uh, Muse, M-E-U-S-E, and also follow her on Twitter. Right now um, there is an escalation. Uh, journalists that are against uh, the regime of Pashinyan Uh, are basically uh, getting arrested, as she actually reported this morning. Um, things are hotting up, and of course it's part of the global war against Russia and Russia influence, and here Pashinyan, Armenia to exercise with U.S. troops next week in a sign of frustration with Russia. Well, I mean, the feeling is mutual. Russia is definitely recognizing the fact that Pashinyan is pushing for Turkish influence in Armenia, and therefore, of course, NATO expansionism into Armenia, which will also impact on Iran that uses the Karabash corridor um, to bypass Turkey through Georgia um, into uh, Russia. Thank you. Okay, thank you for that. Well, if we talk about uh, UK working overseas to help stir up trouble, uh, without question, Britain's special forces are used to do this job. And of course, they're unaccountable to the public because the government or the cabinet office or the senior politicians who determine what our special forces will and won't do simply don't bother to report to the UK public. The public is told we don't talk about these issues. So I've got some uh, concerns coming up about who's heading for the top of the army. But uh, let's just think of it in this terms that uh, Radikin um, became the boss of the uh, Troy services in UK uh, with minimal, minimal experience in the Navy alone. And then, of course, we've seen him in combat gear in Ukraine as if he was advising the Ukrainians on what is a major war of which he has no uh, experience and uh, uh, very little understanding because the war's evol evolving by the day. Uh, so he was the absolute novice. Uh, but he had alongside him at least somebody in Ben Wallace who was experienced in the military, uh, but it was also uh, very much a war hawk as far as Ukraine was concerned. I couldn't resist putting Looney Tunes up, Mike, because that's how you described his end of his reign, because he simply tweeted, that's all, folks, as he left utter disaster and death and destruction in Ukraine. So look at the relative position, somebody very inexperienced, inexperienced in a military sense, somebody uh, with more experience as the minister. Uh, but we're heading into a different world where we've got the newly appointed uh, Grant Shapps, who has no experience whatsoever. And, and many people are commenting on this and effectively saying what a problem it is. But we're now getting hints that a gentleman uh, is coming in to uh, take over as chief of the Uh, general staff, and that's Sir Roland Rowley Walker. Uh, now, this man is absolutely a war hawk, so we've got a reversal in the experience in the roles. Um, but uh, if we just have a think about what's going on, this man is totally trained as SAS. This man is special forces, like the stick of rock. If you were to cut him in half, it would say special forces uh, through his uh, body. And uh, his whole thought process is special forces. And this means operating out of sight of the UK public, being sent to foreign lands on the whim of who? The cabinet office in UK. And once he's in theatre with his men, he will be training and or killing as deemed appropriate by politicians that have not made themselves visible to the UK public. So if we have a look at just three concerns, I'm calling them emer emerging dangers. The first one is that the special force mentality, which is utter secrecy and a complete lack of accountability to the UK public, this starts to corrupt the whole army structure. 
then we're entering a point where we don't really know who is controlling the army itself in UK. I'm going to put in number two, that the army is reshaped to become a proxy war trainer over and above its national defence role. And why do I point to this? Because, of course, in any overseas trouble spot, it will be the special forces who are invariably sent to do the initial training to train um, relatively untrained locals how to kill as effectively as possible. And what I now sense is that uh, the British Army is effectively just going to become the proxy war trainer, but the whole flavour of that training is going to be the secretive nature of uh, UK special forces, and Rowley Walker is going to be just the man to put this into force. And if we bring in number three here, that politicians, I can't say who because nobody ever knows who actually uh, brings special forces into any particular area of the world. Politicians, maybe it's the cabinet office, we simply don't know. But what are we going to see? Are we going to see the British Army used as a covert contract arm of special forces. When the special forces drive wants to do something, uh, they're simply going to use other units in the British Army to fulfil their agenda. Uh, I'll throw this back to, to you, Vanessa, because, of course, in every major trouble spot, including Libya and Syria, special forces have been on the ground absolutely stirring the pot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was a special forces uh, soldier uh, uh, airlifted out of Syria um, in, I think it was 2020, after he was injured by an ID, IED when he was training terrorists to lay the IEDs. And we had the recent video of the British special forces guy training the Free Syrian Army uh, derivatives in Al Tanif, the US military base. So, you know, they, they have been present in all of these uh, war theatres from the very beginning. But you're right, this is a worrying trend. Are we heading more towards this kind of proxy war um, complex? And is that what is now intended going forward? Certainly, we're seeing global escalation on a scale we've not seen before. Yeah, thank, thank you for that. Well, we're just going to end off with the subject of the new development bank, and this is uh, the BRICS development bank, effectively. And uh, I just wanted to raise some points here because a lot of people look at the banking system, including UK Column, uh, saying who, who is formulating the plans, what is happening on a national scale, what's happening on an international scale, and what's happening globally. And of course, we're seeing the very powerful BRICS block emerge. Uh, but alongside it, we've got this bank, the uh, New Development Bank. Um, I just put out this um, policy document to give you an idea of the sorts of things that they're involved in. But here's the policy document on New Development Bank sovereign loans and loans with sovereign guarantee. So if you go to the website, you can check out the real material itself. But I was particularly interested with some comment from this organization global policy because it was it has a very good article about the new development bank and strategic partnerships this was published back in june 2022 but if we just have a look little look at this and have a think about what's being said here um, so first thing is it's saying that the new development bank has a list of 33 partnerships and memorandum of understanding so clearly this bank is going to engage with uh, other banks and the global banking system, but we can see it's involved with national development banks, uh, multilateral development banks, commercial banks, institutions, enterprises, and academia. And uh, if I bring this one in here, uh, we can see that there's uh, cooperation deals and um, they've got the various memoranda of understanding with those. But I noticed that the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development was mentioned here, uh, which, of course, is hovering on the borders with Ukraine. But if we go in a little bit further, uh, what it gets interesting is that we're, we're now seeing obstacles in the relationship between the new development bank and other uh, banks. So the first paragraph, the top paragraph, is saying that the biggest obstacle to EBRD and the development bank working together on projects in Russia appears to be the US and EU sanctions. And if we drop down to the other 
highlighted uh, two paragraphs. Um, then we're seeing that both the EBRD and the New Development Bank uh, have got their relationship on hold while the war is taking place. And the point I'd just like to make out of this is that this is clearly quite a complex situation and it's not simply as easy as saying, well, the banks are all working together to control things because clearly we can see that in the banking structure at the moment, at least on a global scale, uh, there's some clear falling out. Now, is this part of a smokescreen or is this part of more complex politics? Has the war created an agenda that the uh, banks didn't expect? I don't have an answer for that, but I'm going to encourage people to at least have a look in some of this material and have a think about where that may be headed. Okay. That's uh, brought us to the close of the news. A really big thank you to Vanessa for joining us and a huge thank you for all our supporters, viewers, listeners, wherever you are in the world. And thank you very much to everybody who is subscribing because we can only do what we do with your financial support. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.